accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles. That account of the resurrection appearances, which is found in the 15th chapter of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, is an enormously important passage. Paul likely wrote this letter between 53 and 55 CE, but the earliest gospel, the Gospel of Mark, probably wasn't written until at least 70 CE. That makes what Paul wrote to the Corinthians the earliest written account of the resurrection of Jesus that we have. But it is not a story of the resurrection so much as it is a list, a list of the people who experienced the resurrection. And the way that Paul presents it, it appears to be at least that had been formalized and handed down as a tradition sometime before this letter was written. This list is significant because it is a record of something that I find to be incontrovertible, that the early Christians did have experiences of the presence of Jesus after he had died, experiences that changed everything for them. They must have initially passed on those experiences as individual stories, each one personalized and unique. But at some point, someone felt the need to take all of those stories, some of which have been lost to us, and turn them into a list. And that is a process that really interests me because it tells us a lot about what the priorities were for those early Christians. Now, I will admit that my imagination sometimes takes me in weird directions, but I imagine that maybe it happened something like this. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 5.11, The List. your attention. This is really important. Will you listen to me? Everybody be quiet. Thank you. That's better. First of all, let me confirm the rumor that I know all of you have been hearing. Yes, it is true. He's back. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, the golden-tongued preacher from Galilee, 
the man who could spin a beautiful parable out of little more than a few mustard seeds and a missing sheep, the healer and wonder worker, and, most of all, the man who challenged everyone to see the world as they'd never seen it before, and who was condemned by Pontius Pilate for it, and nailed to a cross and died. Jesus is alive again. Don't ask me to explain it. I don't understand it any more than any of you, but that is the truth of it. But I also understand that he is only back for a limited engagement. He would love to see each and every one of you individually, but there is a narrow window for these appearances, and I have been assigned to make sure that they all take place correctly and, most of all, in the proper order. Why does order matter? I'm very glad you asked me that, Tom. Obviously, it matters because people are going to look to those who see him for leadership and guidance. And how are they supposed to know who to look to first if they don't know who sees him first? In fact, people, I'm sorry to say, but there's already been an incident of Q jumping. Yeah, I can hardly believe it myself. Apparently, there was a bunch of women who went out to the tomb early this morning to try and get a head start on everybody else. And there are some conflicting reports about what they actually saw, but I'll tell you, it doesn't really matter whether they actually saw the risen Jesus or just got a report that he wasn't there from some angels or something. Their experience is not going to be included in this official list because Q-jumpers are not going to be rewarded. So, here is the official list of the appointments. First, Cephas, then the Twelve. After that, he's going to appear to, oh, 1643... Let, let's say about 500 of the brothers and sisters, then James, then all of the apostles, and finally, last of all, to some fellow named Paul. All right, all right. I know you all have questions, and you're going to have to ask them one at a time. This is not going to work if we all have to speak at once. Finally, I'm glad we've got that all sorted out. I have all of your questions and comments submitted to me in written form, and I will be going through them one by one. First of all, I am shocked, completely shocked, that so few of you know that Cephas is actually how the Greeks like to spell the Aramaic word kepa. And no, I don't know why the list has to be in Greek. That's just the way it's going to be, all right? So, Kepa is the Aramaic word for rock that gets written as Cephas in Greek. 
Of course, the Greek word for rock is Petra, so Kepa is the same as Cephas is the same as Peter. Keep up, people. And in response to many of your comments, some of which are a bit impertinent, Tom, yes, Peter goes first. I know that he has made a lot of mistakes and that whole denying he even knew Jesus three times has been duly noted, but the church is going to need him to make some key decisions. So, yeah, there may be smarter disciples out there. There may be more reliable ones, but we need Peter in that first position. Okay, the next appearance is to be to the twelve. I don't think I need to explain to you people that the symbolic importance of that number is something that we just need to underline. Obviously, the twelve represent the twelve tribes of Israel, the whole people of God, and we need to get them in there before we get too far down the list. Now, some of you have raised a problem with that. It appears that one of the twelve disciples of Jesus, a man named uh, Judas Iscariot, uh, seems to have disappeared. In fact, the rumor has been going around that he may have had some role to play in how it was that Jesus fell into the hands of the authorities. I promise you that we will look into that allegation very seriously. But, for the moment, it does leave us with a sticky problem. I suppose we could just let Jesus appear to the Eleven and call it Twelve, but the whole point of all of this is to have a specific group of Twelve men who can act as witnesses. So what are we gonna do? This is weird. I'm getting a note here from the future. This is apparently from some fellow named Luke who is going to write a book called The Acts of the Apostles. He says that a replacement for Judas will be named, but not actually until after all of these appearances are finished. He says that there will potentially be two candidates, men who have been with Jesus right from the very beginning. These will be Joseph, a.k.a. Barsabbas, a.k.a. Justice, and Matthias. So, here's the plan. We're going to have Jesus appear to the eleven, plus Joseph, plus Matthias, then whichever one gets chosen to replace Judas will have been part of this very important appearance to the Twelve. Yes, yes, I can do simple addition. I know that makes 13, but the symbolism matters, so we're just going to mention that there were 12, and I'm sure that nobody will ever notice. All right, 
moving on. Next, we have the group of 500. And yes, yes, you all get to be in on that one, even if you're part of the other groups. This is a free-for-all, and let me assure you that 500 is only a rough estimate. Okay, next on the agenda, we have an appearance to all the apostles. And, to answer the question that about a dozen of you wrote, I do not know what the difference is between the Twelve and all the apostles any more than you do. But I can't do everything here, and I guess you're just gonna have to figure that one out for yourselves. Now, the next appearance is going to be to James, and sorry, that is not going to be James, the son of Zebedee, or the other James, as some of you seem to think. That is James, the brother of Jesus, and... I know that some of you will say that he shouldn't even be under consideration, but uh, apparently this one comes straight from the top, and Jesus himself insisted that he wanted to bring his brother in, so I don't think you're going to argue with me on this one. And finally, nobody seems to know who this Paul fellow is, so I guess we're not going to really worry about that one. Just keep your eyes open in case he shows up. So, that's it, people. Everyone just make sure you keep your appointment, and I'm sure this will all just work out fine. I do believe that what the Apostle Paul repeats to the church in Corinth regarding the tradition about the appearances of Jesus following his death was a formalized tradition that had been circulating in the church before that point. As such, it is a very important historical record of what was believed by the early church concerning the experiences that had brought the church into existence. Nevertheless, as I hope I have illustrated in this retelling, if you study this tradition too closely, you quickly realize how hard it is to reconcile this list with the other stories of the resurrection. For example, Paul's reference to an appearance to the Twelve is the first historical reference to the idea that Jesus specifically chose that number of disciples with all of the symbolic and potentially apocalyptic associations such a number would have brought with it. But, of course, it is very hard to reconcile an appearance by Jesus to that number of disciples with the gospel accounts of a betrayal by Judas and especially to the account in the book of Acts of how and when Judas was replaced in the group of the Twelve. The list also leaves us with other questions. Where is the appearance of Jesus to the women at the tomb? Who exactly are all the apostles? 
and are they somehow to be distinguished from the twelve? And then there is Paul's inclusion of an appearance to himself. Paul clearly sees himself as having the same experience as the others, something that was only unique in that it was later than the others. But the book of Acts is rather insistent, to the point of actually describing it three times, that Paul's experience of the risen Jesus was very different, and that it, unlike the others, was only a vision. So, what do we do with all of this? I certainly continue to believe that this passage is a very important historical source on the resurrection of Jesus. I take it and interpret it very seriously, despite what this episode might sound like. What I think is important is that we not make this passage into something that it really is not. This is not actually intended to be a historical account of the experience of the early church. It is more a kind of a creed, a statement of faith. And the important thing about a statement of faith is not the specific factual details. It is more about what these things mean. So while I think the list does refer to actual experiences, that were had by real people. We actually should not expect them to stand up to the same kind of scrutiny that we would apply to a strictly historical account. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The mood music for this episode is Industrious Ferret. The music is by Kevin McLeod, is licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. Sound effects were obtained from zapsplat.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>